Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Eitan. Hello, Eitan. So, that awkward silence you just heard is because Eitan actually isn't here with me in our virtual studio today. We had a scheduling conflict caused by winter storms, where both of us are unavailable to record because Aton's traveling. So, that said, we're going to try a very strange format that I made up today, a very epistolary format, where I lob a bunch of balls up into the air, Aton hopefully lobs a bunch of balls back, I briefly respond, and that's the episode. That, by the way, was a sports reference, Aton. I... Don't know what sport that was, but it was something ball-related. So, all that said, I'm going to run through some quick news items, get Aton's takes, I'm sure he'll throw some back at me, and that's our episode this week. A little shorter, a admittedly very strange format, but we didn't want to go a week and miss our cadence. And I'm sure you guys would miss hearing from us. So, all that said, I'm going to kick off with news this week. First news item is Paramount is now the name for Viacom CBS. So this is a very circuitous history. Essentially, Viacom CBS is Paramount from 1912, but over the last 110 years, this company has gone through multiple mergers and renames and acquisitions that were famously owned by Gulf and Western in the 60s and 70s, if you've ever seen that old Paramount logo. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that was Gulf Oil. It's not. It was just a very strange media conglomerate that owned Desilu of I Love Lucy fame, a few records companies, some TV interests, ended up spinning out, merging with CVS. There's this guy named Sumner Redstone who came in and purchased the Viacom assets. He owned a what was called National Amusements, which was a theater chain. And the Redstone family's in and out of the news because they pretty much control Paramount as a company now. But all that said, it's kind of the legacy sequel of naming for a corporate conglomerate in that they are deciding to go with the Paramount name going forward. I, the primary source of this seems to be an LA Times article. It comes up every time I, I've searched for more information around this. But Sherry Redstone, who I believe was Sumner Redstone's daughter, the now late Sumner Redstone, they are reprioritizing everything around Paramount Plus, as we know. Every major media company over the last year has really drilled down doubled down on streaming and refocused everything. CBS has even gone a step further than some other peers and they're, they've sold Simon & Schuster. Uh, so they no longer are in publishing. They've spun off their real estate assets like the old CBS skyscraper they used to own. They're, they're doing a lot of shedding and kind of corporate slimming down all to, re to unite behind streaming and Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, admittedly, terrible name for a streaming service because everyone's going with Plus, but it does have an iconography that we associate with film. It has a long storied history. I think it's an interesting 
switch, but ultimately I think it's just more corporate signaling than anything, kind of like the, the meta Facebook deal. Though Viacom CBS does not have quite the reputation that the name Facebook does as far as negative connotation in modern parlance. So in companies that have a much worse reputation than Facebook or Viacom CBS, MoviePass. So MoviePass is obviously one of our, our pet companies on here on the kind of failed media business hall of fame up with, I don't know, what would we put up there, Aton? We put Quibi for sure. I'd put like the Disney Quest branch of Disney. Would love to get your thoughts on what else goes up there. But MoviePass was the early inc incarnation of what we have now with like AMC A-List where subscription, you pay a flat fee for the month. It was $10 a month or $90 a year. You can watch all the movies you, you want. Obviously that did not work out as a strategy because it was not a first party product. The margins were horrific. The signups were, were catastrophically high. And they also tried to nerf their platform into the ground once they realized that people were spending too much on it. The parent company, company Helios and Matheson, who originally acquired MoviePass from a guy named Stacy Spikes, and they acquired it from him. They juiced this pro this product by raise, lowering that price to ten dollars a month from I think it was fifty dollars a month, and obviously ran it into the ground. And their stocks tanked, though. Aton does actually have Helios and Matheson shares still, as we discussed on the movie past episode we did previously. But Spikes actually acquired the IP for MoviePass back from the dead Helios and Matheson, I'm assuming out of bankruptcy. So he acquired it for a whole whopping $14,000, which honestly I wish I had known that was up for sale because it'd be great to own MoviePass for $14,000 is a bit. But he had recently had an investor presentation. It was kind of a, I don't know, discount Apple presentation, very much like the scene in Don't Look Up where Mark Rylance is in front of an audience and it's just a weird tech presentation. But he outlined his vision for what's going to happen to MoviePass here. It's going to come back. It's going to come back at a to-be-determined price point. But also going to have this disturbing ad layer to it too. So Spikes between MoviePass 1.0 and MoviePass 2.0, he raised money on Kickstarter for a company called Pre-Show, which TLDR on Pre-Show, it uses cameras to track your eyes to make sure you're actually watching ads versus ignoring them. And in exchange for you actually actively watching ads, you get to watch movies for free or get other incentives. So in this case, theoretically, a advertiser would pay higher CPMs for ad views, knowing that somebody's going to be forced to watch and reckon with an ad in order to get a free movie out of it. So I... I, I I think it's kind of an interesting idea as far as the ad tech. I think it's horrible and draconian and dystopian, and I would rather pay to not ever have to do that. But hey, there's at least a monetization channel here that wasn't before. I 
am here for MoviePass coming back and crashing and burning once again in some fashion. And I am just thrilled that one of my favorite series is now Returned from the Dead, and I get to watch this play out in real time. So finally on my side, I wanted to do a wow, which we haven't done in a second. So as a reminder, that means what are we watching? So I have officially transitioned into the 2022 movie year by watching Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy. Fantastic. Loved it. It's major Soderbergh. One of my favorite things I've seen in a bit. One of my favorite Soderberghs, I think. Probably top five. It's just this lean, mean conspiracy thriller about, essentially, Alexa and the content moderators that sit behind everything on the internet. Zoe Kravitz is spectacular in a performance that admittedly feels like a, a hybrid between Natalie Portman and Closer and Lisbeth Salander across any permutation of the girl with that dragon tattoo. But I think it's a she adds some interesting nuance and depth to the character. It is fascinating to watch. But overall, I just highly recommended it for the reason I would normally recommend a Soderbergh film in that it is stylish as hell and so fun. It's also less than 80, it's less than 90 minutes, I think at 89 minutes. And I don't know, it scratches a bunch of itches I had and was a phenomenal film. So highly recommend it. Hoping Aton has had the chance to see it before he responds to me here, but I'll let you take it away with that. Well, thank you, Carl, for kicking us off. This is definitely, um, you used a lot of very nice English words to describe the type of episode that this was going to be. I would have just said weird and innovative and like groundbreaking, but I'll take I'll take some of the ones that you shared. I was half expecting when you when you opened up, but like, and as always with me is a ton to hear you be like, oh, damn it. Sorry, I'll start again, but pretty well done. Um, yeah, so Snowstorms really, really play a game with me. I'm actually visiting our friend Kevin in Toronto, and I was supposed to fly one day. There was supposed to be a snowstorm, had fled the day before. COVID um, canalized pretty strict with the century requirements, which is great by me, but that meant that travel became way more difficult because if I waited a day, basically the test that I had would have kind of lapsed. So I'm here, I'm in Toronto, drove a little bit, already seen so many studio lots. I'm going to see the What We Do in the Shadows set later today. Very exciting in general. Um, but thanks for kicking us off. This, yeah, definitely interesting things. First things that come to mind, I think you touched on, on the story of Viacom CVS and the move to Paramount. I think it's also a very, you know, it feels way more natural, like you mentioned, than a meta. I think it continues with this trend where companies continue to kind of uh, support themselves from their more legacy or premium naming, which is interesting in the media world, uh, you know, similar to Warner Media and HBO Max, where even if the company is still Warner Media, you know, the whole future is centered about HBO Max. And here with the move to Paramount, the, the first thing that came to mind is that this has to mean or I would hope it would mean that they're bringing Showtime and Paramount Plus closer together. Like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Paramount Plus, I think, is doing things well. Um, especially for someone that is that young. Like, we've seen some of the Peacocks of the world or some others that continue to struggle. Even though Peacock is doing quite well with the Olympics and the Super Bowl, I should have said. But anyway, Paramount Plus, with a lot of their 
live TV, their news stuff, the you have access to your local CBS station, you get all of the NFL. It's pretty great. Um, so move fine, rebranding, whatever. I, I I care more about what happens after and, and hopefully hopefully that's that's one of the things that happens. Um the second one that you brought up, I love the way you close the movie pass section because we get more movie pass story. The book is not written yet. It continues to expand and that is just so lovely. Um watching the um, the presentation, the Fox for for Apple, is that how you say it? For Apple? I don't have you live here to correct me, but anyway, it was definitely a little bit disappointing, lack of details. Uh, it was exciting because we love MoviePass and we want to be able to buy our MoviePass pants and whatever, but yeah, I expected something different. Like, we've talked about that they were our favorite just based on how they came into the scene and uh, the disrupt- disruption gets thrown around a lot, but it, it did change kind of how movie theaters think about their business model. All of them now have a subscription service. If you go to the movie pass, the new movie pass website, they brag about it. They talk about all the different chains that have the system. But you know, we've mentioned with AMC stops, does it apply to all the movie theaters? No. But it's also twenty-two dollars. It includes IMAX and 3D and discounts. And part of me was hoping that they did something a little bit more, a little bit more interesting, and we didn't get it, but still, glad to continue with the story, glad to see them push each other, competition is good, and in this type of of industries that are so, you know, all the movie theaters have relatively the same business model in terms of, like, they're independent companies, well, I guess Adam Draft House is now a PE company, but, you know, Cinemark and AMC and all of these are kind of, that's what they are. Right, so all of the innovation. Sometimes you need someone that is an outsider that doesn't own some of the physical assets or doesn't own all of the value chain to really disrupt part of it. So, hoping they bring something new. Hoping also the movie theaters are kind of forced to continue innovating because that's how things happen. Um, completely agree on the, on the pre-show thing. Oh my god, that sounds as as creepy as it gets. Had exactly the same reaction when I think of you know, in- increasing the efficacy and efficiency of advertising, especially like addressable or targeted advertising in TV. This is not the thing that comes to mind at all. <laughs> and uh, I would join you in paying to not have to do this. Uh, things like different ad um, formats. You don't have to go all the way to the crazy, you know, jumping QR code that Coinbase use on the, on the, on the Super Bowl. But we've talked about like, if you're a company that is running an ad, why not put a QR code on the next to it? Or why not say something if you know exactly who's watching? Make it some more personalized so that it catches your attention. And it, yeah, tracking your eyes seems like a, yeah, I, I don't like it. Um, but closing movie pass, yeah, on the, on the pantheon of failed uh, media businesses, especially contemporary media businesses, right? We're not going to look back. I think for me, the first one that came to mind was Quibi again. The other one that comes to mind is the Metreon. Uh, which, of course, we have a legacy Metreon, I guess, in San Francisco, which was this kind of futuristic mall-slash-media center that Sony tried to create. I believe at the end they only had one in San Francisco, in New York, and in Tokyo. And now they basically transitioned to be regular malls with a movie theater. And now the movie theaters are AMCs, I think, all of them. Um, 
But yeah, that was interesting. Uh, the other things that came to mind, even though they're not exactly businesses, the Universal MonsterVerse died, uh, you know, with a very, very light uh, hump, you know, nobody heard it die, but it died. I think of like the Disney animations, like Paris and Orlando Studios, that were that were working on like planes and Lilo and Stitch, and supposedly on like Toy Story Two or Toy Story Three. I don't remember. You're gonna know before the acquisition from Pixar. But yeah, those all were those were also going. They went out of um, history very quickly. But we should make this more formal. We should come up with a, the, the our top our Mount Rushmore, our top five. Because that's, that's pretty good. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on, and well, no, let's close with Kimi. I haven't had a chance to watch Kimi. It just came out last week. Soderbergh just continues to drop films left or right. Uh, fascinating stuff, especially during the pandemic. I agree with you on the like, I like him so much, and it's still so weird how the lack of marketing. Like, Kevin literally tasted it like a week before, and he's like, there's a Soderbergh dropping on Thursday. And we're like, what? Well, maybe you knew. I didn't know. But, yeah, he seems to do it for the love of the game, and I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. No HBO Max in Canada, so I'm going to have to wait until we're back. But um, that should be a good one. Um, from my wow, uh, a lot of TV. I've continued a lot of the, um, the great pottery throwdown, which is fantastic. It's so pretty good. I guess the ones that I just didn't talk about were the, the movies that I watched on... On Sundance, so I'll just give a kind of a the one minute pass at that. The first one that I watched was Good Luck to You, Leo Grant, which is um, stars Emma Thompson as this kind of um, school teacher. He's her husband passed away, and she basically hires uh, a male gigolo to you know be with her, and it's a pretty sweet, um, funny movie. Emma Thompson is great. Um, as you know, in Sundance, I try to watch a lot of. Latin movies, so I watched Dos Estaciones, which is a Mexican movie directed by Juan Pablo Gonzalez about this um, tequila factory hub owner in the Altos region of Jalisco, which is a tequila uh, region. Pretty fascinating stuff, very, very personal story. I really liked it. And then I also watched this movie, magical realism movie called The Cow Who Sang a Song into the Future. It's a Chilean movie about this this girl that passed away 30 years before and she just wakes up in a river and goes to see her family and kind of the reactions that all the family that owns this um, vary, you know, kind of how do they react to, which is pretty, pretty interesting. Um, I also watched Hong for Jesus, Save Your Soul, um, which is this uh, documentary style movie about uh, a mega church um, with uh, Sterling K. Brown and it's, uh, and, and Regina Hall. It's, Pretty good. I, I recommend it when it comes out. And then the last one that I watched was Am I Okay? Which was the directorial debut of Tino Taro and her partner Stephanie Aline. Um, it stars Dakota Johnson and Sonoya Mizuno. Sonoya Mizuno from Devs. She's fantastic. I was like, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? From Devs. Um, yeah, very cute. I don't know when all of these movies are going to come out. Like we mentioned on the <laughs> Oscar and, uh, nomination episode with Four Good Days being nominated two years after Sundance, uh, we might not hear about these movies for a year. But just wanted to drop them in. Because I wanted to close out with something that I wanted to get your reactions on, and is something that, I don't know if we brought it up last week, but I've been also reading about it online, and I thought it was good to, to touch on it, which is how interesting these year's Oscars are going to be 
that basically all the movies are going to be accessible before the ceremony. Um, last year we had something similar, of course, but like we mentioned, it was just a strange year with the amount of movies that were released and how they were released. There were just not that many. There was a Sonic the Hedgehog movement. <laughs> but yeah, like basically all the movies are out or accessible, even the things that tend to be more difficult, like the foreign films. Drive My Car is going to HBO Max in less than two weeks. Um, Worst Person in the World is available for rent. And I think it's only also coming out in less than two weeks. Um, Nightmare Rally, which was released in theaters, is already in HBO Max and in Hulu. Um, so it's it's going to be an interesting year where everyone that is interested in this should be able to watch everything from the comfort of their couch before the ceremonies. And when we think of the, of the, you know, how do we get the Oscars to be more important? One of them is that, right? Making sure we the conversation happens around movies that are watched. And then, of course, the the everlasting blue sky conversation about what might be some interesting new um, awards that might be given that would interest people more. So, that is a tease to my AUA. But that's what I have. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to you for the AUA, and then I'll reply with, with my answers and also with my AUA for you. So, before I do an AUA for you, I do want to quickly respond to some of these things you brought up. I, this format's very interesting, and I'm glad we can still do an episode, but I hate that we can't actually have a conversation. For example, when you said Regina Hall earlier in your Sundance conversation, I instantly realized that we did not talk about the very strange Oscar host announcement, which is Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer, and Regina Hall hosting the Oscars. We will do that next week. But what a strange combination of people, and a charismatic combination of people, but... Very odd. All right. Actual responses to what you said, though. First of all, I want to kind of work backwards here. The effect of the Oscars being fully accessible. I, you know that I am very bearish on the Oscars import in culture and that it's more as we, as tastes change, as the biggest movies in the world are not necessarily the most critical beloved or, or genre pushing I just think the Oscars matter less and less. And we, we talk all the time about how it's an industry award show. Nobody else televises their industry award shows outside of entertainment and don't really think it's as necessary to get ratings. But the Academy thinks so. They want to get that sweet, sweet ad money. But ultimately, I think they should just become more of a nonprofit focused on developing young filmmakers and preserving art than trying to make money off of an award show. But that's a, another conversation we will have more in depth every two weeks until this podcast ends because it is something we're endlessly fascinated by. That said, I do think it's interesting that the Oscars are fully accessible this year. The only time in recent memory that that's really happened, at least for the Best Picture nominees. And I think it does mean that people that are interested in seeking it out can, and that is a lower barrier of, entry and a lower level of frustration than most people would experience. Like, it was always a Herculean effort to see all of the Best Picture nominees in a theater or on streaming in the brief window between when it comes out and streaming and when the awards were. This year, it's a lot easier, even with things like you said, like the worst person in the world. So, 
excited for that and excited for the, the, the general cultural shift that might cause with people that are inherently already interested in this type of filmmaking. Your A24 teens that are really excited about seeing everything as opposed to the people that are, are cheering when three Spider-Men show up in Spider-Man. So, yeah, I think that's a salient point, and I think that that is something that will have a good cultural impact, though I don't think it's going to save the Oscars. We are in agreement around the lack of marketing for Kimmy. It is so strange that a major filmmaker is just dropping movies left and right every year, and some of them are, like, fantastic, and most of them aren't getting much promo. Don't know what the disconnect is there, but I think Soderbergh's just kind of jaded and wants to get things out there and is just happy to be able to make a movie and distribute it and have it have a long shelf life. And I think that's fair from a filmmaker whose most popular work, like the Oceans films, is probably most appreciated in syndicated reruns on TV or in DVD sales. Like, he's a guy who made peace with the fact that everyone wasn't seeing his movies in theaters or re-watching his movies in theaters. So the form follows the function there, I think. Finally, the last thing I wanted to touch on was absolutely, I do think it's a great topic for an episode to actually make our Mount Rushmore of failed media businesses. We should totally do that. Metreon, Dark Universe, Everything you, you shouted out is exactly the sort of stuff we obsess about. I think so much of Michael Eisner's tenure at Disney and the whole Disney war of, book of it all is because it's just chock full of those strange, awful failed ideas. So yeah, let's do it. Let's commit to it. So I do have an AUA for you this week, which I guess will be more in the spirit of our actual AUA premise here that I ask you a question and then you respond and you know what I don't get to bloviate on whatever I want to say in response to your response in this format so my AUA for you this week is is Disney's Chippendale Rescue Rangers quote an all new never done before completely 100% original movie parentheses based on pre-existing IP owned by Disney or is it not an original movie? And I will let you explain the context for this question. Oh, dude, what a great question. This is fantastic. Very well done. Um, yeah, so Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. The first thing that happens is I see a tweet. Disney Plus account. It's not a reboot. It's a comeback. That that sense exactly what you said. It's an all-new, never-done-before, completely 100% original, capital O, movie, parentheses, based on pre-existing IP owned by Disney, streaming May 20th. And I'm like, well, this is insane, right? How, who could write a tweet like this? I, I know they're trying to be also meta and make fun of themselves, but why would the Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers just say it's not a reboot, it's a comeback? Who cares who owns the IP? This is also a children's movie. Is anyone going to get the joke apart from, like, the you, me, and the other 700 people on movie Twitter? Is this really the audience for the tweet? So, anyway, I texted this to you and to Kevin. And then, like, a second later, both Disney D23, which is kind of the official fan club, and Disney Plus deleted that tweet and created a new one that just said, it's not a reboot, it's a comeback. And I was like, okay, perfect. This makes a lot of sense. And in turn, tried to be funny for a little bit. Somebody was like, this is insane. Uh, you can't say that because this is too meta. Nobody's going to get it. What are you doing? So I was like, okay, this makes sense. They did it. 
But then it got tweeted again from all of the accounts, including the Rescue Rangers accounts and liked by both Disney Plus and the Walt Disney Studios. So this is completely kosher. This is completely approved by everyone. This is insane. This seems insane. Of course, the thing that came to mind is the uh, Jim Belushi meme or like, how are you doing, fellow kids of... Yeah, I, I don't understand who, who this is for, but um, very good movie. I don't know. You know, it's Sandy Samberg and John Mulaney. It is definitely a new movie, I guess. That's the thing that we could say, but uh, yeah, interesting to be, to be in the marketing uh, room where they decided this is what they wanted to do. Insane. Um, what do you think about this? I don't think that that tweet is too meta for our audience as established today. I think people are very used to the concept of kind of a shared universe at this point. Thank you to Disney. But things like Space Jam 2 or... What, what, I forget even what that ended up being called. Space Jam A New Legacy. Sorry. <laughs> it shows that people have like a... A willingness to understand this and understand the machinations of how IP works. I think more detailed than that, bizarrely, the last 10 years of filmmaking have really convinced casual filmgoers and ardent fans of franchises to understand this deeply. I think of things like people blaming Kathleen Kennedy for Disney Star Wars collapsing, though they don't seem to be giving her credit for the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett strategy taking off and working, even if I don't agree with it. I also point to another Disney example, Marvel. Everyone knows, like, everyone knew that the Fox acquisition was big for the X-Men coming out or the Fantastic Four. They also knew that Spider-Man couldn't be in the MCU because of the Sony rights. I think people are aware of the machinations of Hollywood in a way that they've never been acutely aware of in the past. But I do agree that it was a weird tone for Disney to strike. I also find that this film is a weird tone for Disney to strike, too. Chip and Dale have always been kind of ancillary characters used across... Like, they're, they're better iconography than anything. I think of it similar to, like, how Disney used Baloo in the, the 90s where they had him in... What was... I'm blanking on that adventure show he was in where he was a pilot, but... They used them more as iconography that was transferable and just they looked cool and they were cool as far as their characters go. And I find this to be kind of a, just a weird object of a film and how it looks. John Mulaney and Andy Samberg are, of course, funny people, but I find their voice acting to be kind of distracting here and just like it's just watching Andy Samberg and John Mulaney and animation makeup being these things. This seems to hew much more closer to Disney's Space Jam than. Disney's, I don't know, Chippendale version of Ralph Breaks the Internet. Sight unseen. Of course I will see it. I'm just overall very perplexed by this whole thing and the rollout, as you were in, in how you described this whole thing. My way for you is we, you know, we've talked about how adding some awards to the Oscars might be strange. The very famous one has been the popular movie, which they're kind of trying to do this year with this Twitter vote, which is not exactly a popular movie because in that one, the Academy members would vote, not the people. And there has always been talk about what are other things that could make sense, that could be added that would be interesting. You know, things like first director or um, breakthrough performance or 
you know, there is a way of thinking like action sequence or stunts and or, you know, the typical stuff from best couple or the, whatever. If you take it a little bit away from that, what would be an award that you would be honestly interested in that you think could actually make sense? And I want to I want to say that again, because this doesn't mean I'm not interested in something that will help Oscars like watching. This is something that would help you, Carl, being like, oh, my God, I am so excited. My answer to that is I would want an award. And I know this is insane in, in my, whatever. That is almost like best sequence, like best five minutes, best 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be a scene. It doesn't have to be a one take. It, whatever. We can come up with a definition and pit against what the movie community believes to be the first, the best five minutes of any movie ever or in the year. Yes, I know, I know movies are supposed to be everything and where they are pieces that come together. I'm just, there are some like this, right? In this year, we think of the Copacabana scene in Nightmare Alley. We think of the, the gymnasium scene in West Side Story. I probably think of the uh, scene in The Power of the Dog when they're outside camping and, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch calls the kid over to, to see him. Uh, so that would be something that would be interesting. Do you know there is like this pantheon of five minutes or ten minutes or whatever that pass over to our... Again, would this help with people watching more Oscars? Probably not. But that is my idea for you. What do you think? I like that best sequence idea that, that captures kind of like best picture in miniature, but I think there are incredible sequences that not might not necessarily get nominated for best picture. I think about things like Spencer which is a film that doesn't fully quite work, or the ending of Don't Look Up, which I think the ending of Don't Look Up is a far better, stronger thing than the film that precedes it, though I really like the film a lot and am not mad about it being a Best Picture nominee. I think more people would be excited about the ending potentially being a Best Sequence nominee or winner here. I also think about The Green Knight, which I think the ending of The Green Knight is the best sequence of the year for a lot of reasons and really helped the entire film gel together in a way that I didn't necessarily love up until the ending tied it together. And this would be a cool way of honoring that. So yeah, I, I think in my mind, this is something definitely that would be a way of me appreciating elements of films I didn't necessarily love or getting recognition for films I did love in ways that they weren't necessarily recognized. My answer for this is kind of a similar thing to what your answer is, which is kind of a a different riff off of an existing award that solves some of its shortcomings. I would go for a you know, best blocking and choreography Oscar. And what I think this would do is separate kind of technical direction of films from quote unquote direction of films. I, I think there's different skill sets that every director has that they bring to a picture. A lot of directors are great visual stylists. A lot of them are, are demanding in how they coach actors. But a film like... So I just watched the Before Trilogy this weekend. Richard Linklater, a director like Linklater, is more attuned to crafting, getting the best performance out of actors. 
So how do you judge that against someone like Steven Spielberg, who's holding a bunch of technical information in his head to make West Side Story and make it all flow well without it collapsing? And I think a lot of times the best director category kind of gets swept up in the best picture conversation or the best cinematography conversation. Most of the time, certainly a director is responsible for hiring all the right people, working with all the right people, making the best picture, and also making sure the picture looks and sounds great and everything. But ultimately, that's kind of... It's difficult to separate out best director from kind of an altruist look at the job of a director, where the existence of best director and typically how it wins is very much predicated on this film existing is an achievement by this one person and usually one dude. And I think by actually looking at the technical merit of the direction could be fun. This is also a way to subtly like sneak in choreography too. So I, I think you could submit multiple people. So in the case of this, like, shocker, West Side Story would be my winner for this for this year. But I would nominate Spielberg for choreography. I'd, I'd, or Spielberg for the blocking, which is the default answer for why Spielberg's a great director. I'd nominate Justin Peck for the actual choreography on screen, which doesn't choreography doesn't have to be dancing it could be fighting we've talked about fight sequence design on here or special effects you could nominate Janusz Kaminski for this as well for like having to physically move the camera as well like I think it's a way of honoring the technical merit of the direction and also spreading the wealth beyond multiple into multiple categories beyond just the quote-unquote director and that's something I would love to see best blocking and choreography there's probably a better name for it but that's what i got for you so on that note we're going to draw this very strange episode to a close i hope it was intelligible for you and at least a little bit what you wanted and by you i'm talking to you the audience listening to this next week we will be back we will actually be back with one of our first guests in a minute uh, we're going to have Roman Milan on to speak about wrestling and the business of wrestling when it comes to streaming and media. So really excited to have Roman on for that and to dig into a subject that, yes, is sports. But I'm going to stretch my vocabulary a little bit more here. Until then, everyone, thank you for listening and please stay safe and talk to you next week.